May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. This is the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am and will be continuing to be practicing in southeastern Wisconsin in the metro Milwaukee area. I am an internist, pediatrician, lifestyle medicine physician, and a clinical lipidologist. In addition to those areas of care, I also have enjoyed working with those struggling with fibromyalgia and overlapping pain conditions such as chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, irritable bowel, and migraines, to name just a few. I am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. This podcast is meant for those living with fibromyalgia, their loved ones, and also the medical community so they can learn more about helping their patients live better with fibro. For too long, depression was not considered a real problem deserving of real answers and real solutions. So too it is with fibromyalgia and related problems. Most people living with these conditions are left frustrated and in deep despair. They have gone years and often decades down many failed attempts at getting better, often falling prey to predatory and opportunistic treatments without strong support for their efficacy. The good news is there is real evidence and real understanding and real solutions using a multifaceted approach blending the best of medical management and lifestyle medicine. Today and next week, we will have a deep dive into how we understand and think about chronic pain. A quick disclaimer, this podcast is for educational purposes only. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own individual doctor. Now on to this week's episode. I'm excited to have a special guest today. We are going to be talking about how we think about getting better and getting healthier for chronic health conditions and specifically dealing with chronic pain conditions and podcast is about fibromyalgia and related problems, which is such a frustrating problem for so many, but I think it's so important to take some time to pause and reflect and think deeper about our expectations and looking at what's called the medical model of getting better and healing and the biopsychosocial model or the mind-body-spirit model, as they call it in the world of osteopathic medicine. And to do that, we have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Heather Martarella. She is a doctor of psychology who has a special interest in working with those who are struggling with chronic pain. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I gave a quick introduction, but do you mind just sharing a little bit more about your 
professional and education career and where you are currently practicing. And then also share something about what you like to do when you're not thinking about pain. <laughs> when am I not thinking about pain? <laughs> okay. Actually, that's often I'm not thinking about pain, but I really enjoy all the research on it. So it's a seven day a week thing that pain is playing a role in my thought processes. But I was a generalist, a clinical psychologist, and I had an injury accident in 2012 that taught me what chronic pain really was about and for some years there. And in that learning process, I went to get additional training so I wanted to better understand how to deal with my own chronic pain. I had been treating people with chronic pain in the early 2000s, but looking back on it, I think without having had that own lived experience, I didn't get all the layers of it, right? In the same ways that I could have and maybe didn't address it as holistically with some of my patients as I could have. So I switched my career around over the next two years, ended up getting out of academia and a small private practice that was more of a generalist approach and went into just working with people with chronic pain. And in the course of the next couple of years, working with people with chronic pain, I really learned how strong that bidirectional relationship is between pain and sleep. So those are the two areas I focus on now. Great. And what do you like to do in your free time for fun? Oh, hiking is the first thing that comes to mind. But if you put me next to a beach, I get to walk along the beach, thrilled. So keep being active. Nature. And you get a chance to be in California where there's some pretty nice weather year round. A lot of times, like I talked about in the introduction, we have expectations when we go and see a doctor or try to get help with a medical professional to deal with pain. Can you talk about what's known as the medical model approach to dealing with a general health conditions and then specifically with pain before we compare it to the biopsychosocial model of care? Got it. So generally, when we're going to a medical doctor, we are looking for a diagnosis. We want very clear understanding about why we're experiencing our pain. So people are looking for diagnostic testing. They want evidence about what's going on in their body and why they're experiencing pain. This may be followed up with treatments that include pain medications or muscle relaxants or antidepressants that are related maybe more to the treatment of nerve pain, things of that nature. Often will include injections or sometimes surgical treatments. Those are the toolbox of those medical profession. And that works for a lot of things. A lot of acute concerns can be managed through the medical model well. But once something's become chronic or pain has become chronic specifically, then a biopsychosocial approach is going to be more of a holistic what's going on in all aspects of this person's life that's contributing to their pain or that is being impacted by their pain is going to be an approach that's going to work better for those who have these chronic conditions. So when somebody is coming in with pain, there is looking for a holy grail. What is the specific cause? And that's the expectation in a lot of the medical world that it does happen. If somebody can discover that they have a brain tumor if they have a headache or they may have an appendicitis. Their chest pain may be because they're having a heart attack. Uh, they're is a broken bone. There is a clear herniated disc that is bulging and there's a clear pain that's ridiculous and, and causing that. But as you said, it's, it starts to transition to longer and more diffuse pain. That's where the tricky part happens. And I think the medical model works well often yes. for those types of illnesses. And I think that's what most pain clinics are 
operating under that medical model. When I say often that's a procedure based as if we see a problem. And how can that cause confusion for the patient who may have already been through that, uh, through some of these clinics where they've been diagnosed and treated under purely a medical model? Yeah, so there's definitely a place for the medical model, as you're saying. There are some things that can be cured, effectively treated using a medical model approach, acute pain in particular for a lot of people. But for those for whom the pain persists and becomes a chronic condition, it's not going to be as effective. And so often those folks have gone through lots of medical treatment. Sometimes there's medical trauma associated with the treatment, right? Physical, but also psychological because a lot of hope builds up that this is going to be the next thing. I'm going to go get this next procedure. Oh, there's this injection. Oh, now there's this nerve ablation. Oh, now there's this other procedural piece or surgical intervention. And they get a lot of hope built up in that. And as those things are not effective for them, treating that chronic condition, they start losing hope. And so that can lead to a lot more emotional distress related to this. And then they're often, finally, I would say on average, it takes about seven years for people to get to a pain psychologist or those who are working in an interdisciplinary model that are using physical therapy or occupational therapy, along with the pain psychology component and getting the pain neuroscience and getting this biopsychosocial, spiritual, I'll add, model, that they often feel like they've just been dumped at that point, that the medical model and medical providers have abandoned them, that they have taken away any last hope that they have, and they're saying, we have nothing to do for you. We've tried everything. And so hope often gets dashed to that point. And then when they get to this biopsychosocial interdisciplinary team, there's a lot of building up hope that needs to be done again because people have lost motivation to try something else. They feel like they've tried everything because they've been told, we've done everything for you. We have nothing else to offer you. And so when they've had those messages, often people have given up to a large extent. And sometimes it's helping to rekindle that fire and giving them hope and by educating them that this is not the end of the caboose or the caboose at the end of the train. There's so much more that can be done here. It's a good segue into how quickly should a more biopsychosocial or comprehensive interdisciplinary approach. Should we wait seven years? Please, no. So there's a, a new company that is providing me with referrals. And one of the fabulous things about this, it's in a workers' compensation system, is they've been getting people to me three to six months after injury. And we can see so much more rapid recovery for a lot of those folks, right? Because the medical trauma has not been there so long. They haven't had years of trying to do these things. That's not to say that we haven't had pretty rapid success with folks who have had pain that's persisted for in the 20s, right? At a patient is 26 years worth of pain. And in the course of a six-week program, they saw rapid quality of life improvement. So I don't want to have folks give up hope. Oh, it's been seven years plus. I'm finally getting this treatment. It's going to take forever for me to get out of it. That, that's well, not necessarily the case. But. So those who are listening are being teased a little bit because they want to know how, what are the secret but before we get to that, what is the biopsychosocial model? Because I don't think a lot of people maybe have heard of it. If they're a patient, they're not aware of that. And it's so important in how we frame looking at chronic pain and related problems. Understood. So the biopsychosocial, and sometimes people will call it the biopsychosocial spiritual model. So I'll include kind of a definition for the whole bit of it there, is that we're taking into account our biological bases. We're looking at how things are happening physiologically in the body. What's going on physically, right? What are the symptoms that I'm experiencing? We're looking at the psychological impact, whether it is 
how our psychology is impacting our pain. Our pain is impacting our psychology. I say it's actually one and the same, but you can also see it as a bi-directional model. And then there's the social impact. So often people can relate to, I've become more isolated or I'm missing out on social activities or social connections that used to be a more important or active part of their life that they used to be able to engage in. So we look at those pieces as well. And then for a lot of folks, their religious faith or their spiritual beliefs play a big role in their overall quality of life and functioning as well. So use like the biopsychosocial spiritual approach. So it's really encompassing more areas in which people are operating in their lives and that impact their pain experience. Yeah. And when you look at your approach, if you have somebody that is seeing you after, unfortunately, maybe I'm guessing probably the vast majority have many years. They haven't, except for some of these newer connections with approaches getting to you within months instead of waiting. What is your initial approach? And hopefully if somebody's in a clinic or multidisciplinary approach or a patient who's working with a pain psychologist, what can they expect in the beginning as far as their meetings with somebody like yourself? And how does that progress over time? Great question. Often because hope has been dashed, I am looking for what are the ways that their pain has impacted their quality of life and their functioning. So what is it that they're not able to do now that they used to be able to do that is making them feel like maybe life isn't worth living so much? There's a high suicide risk with this population because feels like quality of life or often because quality of life has been dashed so heavily. So it's really about building up hope. I, but at first I need to find out what it is that pain has taken from them, what's been impacted, and then starting to provide some education about how about neuroplasticity and ways in which our nervous system changes with pain that's become chronic, and then providing some hope in that education process about how we can start changing how the nervous system is reacting, right? So once they start understanding what's going on in their nervous system and learn a bit maybe about central sensitization, we start teaching them about how they can have an impact on this. So instead of it being something that feels like it's completely outside of their control, starting to teach people how they can gain some control over this. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, I'm pretty confident you are, the locus of control and how, particularly in the medical model, going back to that just briefly, is that there's often this external locus of control. It's the medical doctor, it's the experts who are going to be helping me through this. And we start switching that around and saying, let's look at building an internal locus of control. What's within your control? What are some behavioral changes you can make? What are some thinking patterns that might be kind of keeping you stuck in this? I don't want to use a lot of weird terminology that people may not be familiar with. Some say the fight, flight, freeze response, right? Where our, our, the gas pedal is stuck on, that we're just stuck in that place and not being able to get to that relaxation response where our body can really allow us to start doing more. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Yeah, that's so important that we're looking at things. And that locus of control is so important because I don't think that there's that awareness that 
in a sense, the patient, the person going through this, is a passive participant. And actually, that's fun as a doctor. That's easy. Somebody's got a strep throat. We give them antibiotics. All you have to do is swallow the pill, and you're going to get better. Trust that the surgeon's going to take out your inflamed appendix. All of those are so much what we're traditionally used to. And actually, a lot of doctors, I think, gravitate towards rescuing and healing a patient. That's very satisfactory when you're a surgeon. But unfortunately, even if whether it's neurosurgery, and I think most neurosurgeons are very good at recognizing if they say they don't want to do surgery on you, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing. The surgeons that say that have the utmost respect because they get paid a lot more money to do surgery than they do to say don't do surgery. So if they're causing that, but hopefully as the ones that are doing a good job are trying to thrill that, hey, I think there's more going on, but unfortunately they're not trained or have the time to spend like you do and hopefully other doctors out there to work in that comprehensive Role And that's not just with chronic pain, but that's things with any chronic medical condition, like managing somebody's diabetes, managing a healthy weight. All of those are things, get their story, validating that you actually care. Many people may not realize that by the time they're seeing that third spine surgeon after the two failed back surgeries and the four epidurals that may or may not have helped, maybe they've been on opioids. But by then, they're a shell of what they used to be, aren't they? Often, they, you may not know that this person used to run track in college or played lacrosse or was in a high-level sport, and now they're 70 pounds heavier. They don't like how they look. Their activity is a fraction of what they used to be, and they are often hopeless. So you're at least validating and listening and knowing that story. But I'm guessing a lot of providers up to that point didn't even know what their life was like before. They often don't have time. So giving the medical provider some grace here is that they often don't have the time, like you said, that I will have to hear someone's story and often feel like they haven't been seen for who they are. And with pain, as you were mentioning, someone used to be identify a certain way, right? Maybe I was a firefighter, a police officer, or I was a marathon runner or all the different parts of who we are. And so many of those things have changed. So often it feels like identity has taken a hit. But even bigger than that for some people is that no one believes me that I'm still in pain, that there's this questioning. So I think it is about listening first, finding out people's story and validating their experience for sure, but also letting them know I believe them, that they are experiencing pain, that it is impacting their lives. It is impacting for a lot of people, their sense of identity. And then again, building that hope, right? That there's a way of getting some of these things back and often many of these things back in their life. I think those who are listening, I encourage if you have a chance, write down your story for your doctor ahead of time. They may, if you took the time and just share all of these things that you've been through, what your life was like before, during, after the impact. And I think most doctors would, if they have a chance, read through that and have that ahead of time. Because sometimes there's so much that's happened, you won't get the whole story out if you're just trying to on the spot remember and recall all of that. But if you have a chance, somebody just 
emailed me who was frustrated living in a different part of the country and said, hey, I love your podcast, love your book. Do you know anybody in my area that does this? And unfortunately, I don't know anybody in that part of the country. It isn't a group of people who are fibromyalgia specialists or with that trying to find that holistic approach. But I said, hey, if you want to share your story and write it down, I can maybe point you in the direction of where some things are. But so much is about that validation. I think just hearing that there are other stories that other people are out there. Then you get into the education part. I do. I get into the education piece of it. Yeah. You mentioned so many things that are so important and they really can expand into larger conversations on their own. Yes, I do get into the education piece of it. And that is where people often start having a lot of questions and maybe some skepticism comes up as I start talking about potential treatment plans, right? That there are all these different options available to you. But if you don't mind, I'd like to go back briefly to what sure, you just said about it. writing out your story. I do often recommend that folks will, because medical providers generally do have a very short amount of time, or physicians, I may say, have a short amount of time to be with people often. And so I will have patients recommend that they will put down just bullet points. What are the your key, your core values that you want this provider to know about or your physician to know about? And then what are the big bullet points in your life that you think it's important for them to know about how your pain is impacting your functioning. So that gets to now SMART goals, right? So specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, timely, or relevant, timely, depending on who you're looking at with that. And being able to develop your SMART goals, if you can communicate those to physician, often that's going to help facilitate that conversation as well. They know what's been impacted for you and how to measure if progress is being made in some ways. That you're doing, to you. And that blends the locus of control, that part of this is some actions that you're going to have. Nobody chooses to develop chronic pain, no. but there are some maladaptive behaviors or bad habits that can occur, which I think are important that unknowingly the impact that it has that they develop over time that can then keep them into chronic struggles like a quicksand. Yeah, no, definitely. People are doing the best they can with what they know. And as we're able to provide that education, people start learning more about, oh, okay, maybe there are some thought patterns, unhelpful thinking patterns that I may be falling into. So being able to recognize those and we'll say label it detainment, right? So if we start having that awareness now, oh, these are some thought patterns I may be falling into, catastrophizing for one, this worst case scenario, and falling into this negativity bias, our brain wants to go to, how do I protect you? So it's saying again and again, watch out for danger, damage, right? And sending all these warning signals again and again. And we start hyper-focusing on what are those sensations that are telling me that there's danger or damage in my body. And I'm getting away from living at that point. So helping people start recognizing what some of those maybe unhelpful thinking patterns are or unhelpful um, or unhealthy even perspectives about their pain that may be keeping them stuck to some extent in living that pain cycle and starting to help them find ways of shifting some of that through education. So here's some information that once we know better, we can do better. And I think knowledge is power. So being able to know more and have greater awareness about our role in things, we can start changing the things that are within our control and finding some benefit. All of those thought processes of catastrophizing and that you're not going to get better. And partially, you can't blame them because I went to the doctor and they didn't cure me. How many times? And quite honestly, they gave up on me. It's maybe appropriate response as if somebody has had stage three or four cancer. And fortunately, it keeps spreading. 
And they have to, in a sense, recognize that I may be dying and there's no more hope. In situations, that's just a normal response, as if somebody has to recognize if they have a untreatable stage four cancer that's spreading at some point, I have to accept I'm dying. But even though you feel like you may be dying with chronic pain, you're not dying of metastatic breast cancer that's throughout your body with diffuse pain, but it feels identical, doesn't it, in a sense? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, actually, that people start giving up hope um, because sometimes they feel like it's been ripped away from them, right? Because they felt that the others were in control and that they weren't in control. And so being able to build up even small bits of hope and having people start doing many experiments and changing how they're thinking or changing how they're behaving, improving some other aspects of their life. And as we're able to do some of that, hope starts building. People start seeing some evidence that, oh, things can be changed a bit. Then motivation starts increasing again. And then we can really start making progress. But it does take that initial willingness to try some of these things, these interventions for themselves. So you mentioned neuroplasticity. Many people may be aware of that, but some may not have ever heard of that word before. What is neuroplasticity? Neuroplasticity is about our nervous system's ability to change. So our nervous system is going to consist of our brain and all of the nerves that run through our spinal cord and out through the rest of our body. And these are, there's, let's say, pain pathways is usually how I'll explain it to folks in the simplest terms. Or I'll give various examples about cars with a gas pedal and a brake pedal or pathways. Usually I think of it, there's a pain superhighway in our brain. And part of my role is to help teach people how to make these exit roads, off ramps, and create frontage roads, right? We're gonna run alongside these pain pathways so we can start doing more and make those become the stronger pathways and let these super highways start getting weeds grown over them. We don't wanna keep activating those. So I will teach people about how neural networks or neural pathways or pain pathways, again, I like to think of them as super highways for pain, how those are communicating these messages throughout our nervous system, and then how we react to those messages that we get based on our perception or interpretation of those messages. And that those things can be changed in part by changing how we view them, how we perceive them and how our nervous system reacts to them, whether it's at the base level. Sometimes I'll teach people about the limbic system part of our nervous system. Sometimes I'm teaching people more about the thinking cortex and how there's communication between parts of our brain that are interpreting our pain and how we can work with those differently to calm our nervous system and start creating these pathways that are not necessarily connected to pain that allow us then to be able to function and do more. So the quickie version is that neuroplasticity, I want it to bring to people, is that your nervous system has learned how to operate on these pathways that are connected to pain so heavily, but we can teach the brain and our and actually our nervous system how to create different pathways and respond differently. That's where we will end this week's episode and pick up the conversation with Dr. Martella next week. I hope you have grown in your understanding with insights from this episode. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please hit the like, follow, or subscribe button. Leave a five-star rating and review and share with others. That way more can learn about living better with fibromyalgia. Until next week, go team by